The Midwife Crisis Podcast will touch on sensitive topics regarding the human body, sexuality, pregnancy, and all aspects of women's healthcare and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, I'm Kate. I'm PR, and this is The Midwife Crisis, because it's not just you. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that is so important for women and people with pelvic organs, which is pelvic pain. As we explore this topic, we have the great pleasure of being joined by a bona fide pelvic pain expert, Dr. Amanda Roskowski, MD, PhD. Wow. Yay! Yay! That's a lot of letters. Um, Dr. Roskowski received both MD and PhD degrees from Roslyn Franklin University of Medicine and Science in Chicago, Illinois. She completed her residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and followed that up with a fellowship in advanced laparoscopy and pelvic floor reconstruction at Mercy Medical Center in Baltimore. She returned to the New Haven area in 2016 to help women in this area, and I am so completely honored to be a member of her squad. Aww. Welcome, Dr. Roskowski. Thanks. Thanks, PR. Thanks, and please, Amanda's totally fine. Oh, thank you so much. That actually is a little bit less of a mouthful. Yeah, so. the, the, the name's a lot. It's so a lot. If for anyone out there who doesn't realize, women that are physicians are a lot of times called by their first names, whereas men that are physicians are almost always called Dr. So-and-so. Mm. And so it's a big... Um, thing that I try to do to always tell people, call people by their title, but also she's like one of my BFFs since Aww. I don't usually call her Dr. Roskowski when we're, you know, having a sleepover. So, <laughs> which we've done. We've done that before. It's yes, true. A couple of times. You're making me jealous. I'm Brunch sorry. Oh. Sleepovers. I know. Come you can come on. to the next yeah, one. Yeah, PR, come to the next one. Oh. Brunch squad. So um, I find that as a, a midwife and sort of an expert in the normal, that sometimes when patients have issues that are a bit more complicated, I can feel pretty lost. Um, you know, we can rule out the abnormal. And sometimes I have a little bag of tricks that I can pull from, little things that we can try. But after that, I feel that it's best to refer to a specialist. And the feedback I've gotten from my patients when I say really honestly to them, listen, I don't know how to help you, but let's find someone who can. Um, I think patients really respond well to that and they really respect that. I think, um, you know, there are some basic common causes of pelvic pain that we can diagnose as midwives, you know, such as an infection or trauma. If you tell me you had a trauma, um, some issues related to pregnancy, um, th those are pretty simple. Uh, those type of things tend to be more straightforward and diagnosed quickly so we can, you know, rule those in or out. It's the more complicated issues that I'm grateful to be able to refer to a physician and to be able to tell the patient, I'm not going to give up and, and say sorry for you and just kind of shrug my shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to do it with a physician that I have a re good relationship with because then I know that I'm turning my patient over to someone who um, I know is going to be treating her, him in the, in the trans male case. Um, with compassion and um, who's going to be skilled and will get to the bottom of the problem and who will treat the patient like I would treat the patient, but who has skills that are far beyond mine. Um, so that's, you know, why we're grateful to know someone who we can refer to right here in our town, mm -hmm. like Dr. Roskowski. Aww. I wanted to say it again one more time. There we go. But <laughs> now I'm going to have to say Amanda because... Um, uh, and I just want to talk briefly um, about what made you want to get into women's health care. And did you always know? And then we'll talk some more about, um, you know, specifically working with people in pelvic floor and pain, pelvic pain issues. 
So uh, during medical school, you do different rotations in different fields, and I found myself very interested in surgery. I liked general surgery. I liked OBGYN. But what I liked more about OBGYN is the fact that you could develop relationships with patients, is you didn't just see them for gallbladder or uh, appendectomy, Mm -hmm. and then they went out into the world. You actually got to see patients throughout their whole life. And what's great about OBGYN is that you see patients in adolescence, you can see them through their pregnancy, see them through menopause, help with their urinary incontinence that happens after they pushed a bunch of babies out. (laughs) Um, And that's what really drew me to OBGYN in general. During my residency, uh, I just became more interested in surgical aspect of gynecologic care um, and decided then to specialize in GYN surgery. I wasn't particularly drawn to like GYN oncology or, or cancer, treatment of cancer, women's cancer, but I definitely was interested in minimally invasive surgery because it's amazing that you can take a uterus the size of a grapefruit or even larger, large pumpkin, maybe it's small, mm-hmm. um, out oh, <laughs> out wow. of a woman just from three tiny half a centimeter incisions. It's, it's just incredible. Whoa. And women are going back to work in two weeks and not even spending the night in the hospital mm-hmm. after a hysterectomy. It's just it's fantastic. Um, so that's how I sort of found my way into um, gynecology. Okay. That's awesome. And also, I just want everyone to know that when she talked about pushing out babies and then having urinary incontinence issues, <laughs> she looked me right in the eye. Um, I, may, I may or may not need to refer myself to Amanda. Anytime, girl. Anytime. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Amanda, you focus mainly on pelvic pain and pelvic floor issues. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are the most common causes of these disorders? What are the solutions that you and specialists like you can offer women? So I think we have to go back a little bit and just talk about women's anatomy. Yeah. So um, people that were that are, are born female or assigned female at birth um, typically have a vagina. The top of the vagina is a cervix. On the other side of the cervix is the uterus. And then on each side of the uterus is the fallopian tubes. And that's how an egg gets out of an ovary every month and goes into the uterus. Um, your body's whole job is to try to get you pregnant. So mm-hmm. every month your ovary makes a cyst. It's very common. What's supposed to happen? (laughs) Ovaries are supposed to make cysts. Women always freak out about cysts. Yeah, I think that's why she's always like that's your body's job is to make a cyst. That cyst breaks open. Um, That's called ovulation. That type that can cause pelvic pain sometimes. Uh, It's a funny German name for it. Middle schmerz. Middle schmerz. (laughs) Middle schmerz. And uh, then that egg goes into your uterus. And if you get pregnant, then you don't get your period. And if you do get pregnant, then you do. That lining of the uterus is called the endometrium. Sometimes the endometrium goes where it's not supposed to be. So sometimes it can actually end up outside of the fallopian tubes, outside of the uterus and end up in the pelvis. It can even end up all the way at the top of your abdomen on your diaphragm. And that's the muscle that contracts when you take a big, deep breath. That tissue, it doesn't know it's not in your uterus. So so every month when you get your period, that tissue on the inside of your belly is bleeding too. And it can hurt a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's one cause of pelvic pain is endometriosis. And we can talk a little bit more about that later if you like. Um, another cause of pelvic pain is called adenomyosis. Mm-hmm. So that's a condition where mm-hmm. that lining of the uterus, instead of growing flat on the inside like a carpet the way it's supposed to, grows into the muscle of the uterus. So it makes the uterus like a big blood sponge. That's how Uh I like to describe it. I know, right? That sounds awful. (laughs) Blood sponge. (laughs) That's the name of my band. Oh my God, that'd be a great band. (laughs) Would it be Mellow Folk? Yeah, totally. (laughs) So uh, your uterus then has to contract extra hard to push that blood out when you have your period. So that can cause pelvic pain. 
um, the uterus is a muscle, and sometimes those muscle fibers grow in ways they're not supposed to. So they can form little structures or big structures called fibroids. Mm-hmm. Fibroids can cause pelvic pain. They can cause heavy bleeding. Um, I have had patients that have uteruses up to their um, very top of their abdomen, mm-hmm. almost like a full-term pregnancy, their mm-hmm. uterus can be so big. Yikes. Yeah. So it's normally the size of, would you say, like your fist or I would, smaller? I would say your fist when uh-huh. you are a menstruating woman. Right. And then when you get um, older and you're in menopause and you're not, uh, you don't have as much estrogen around, your uterus can keep, be very small, like mm-hmm. 15 grams. Yeah. I don't even know what what 15 grams is like. I think uh, I've seen that picture on social media where the person's holding the like postmenopausal teeny tiny weird uterus. Have you seen that? No. Oh, Why okay. does but, it uh, have to be weird again? Sorry. Oh, it's a, <laughs> the, the beautiful organ. That, the beautiful that, micro uterus. <laughs> no, I'm seriously, they can be so small. Like I mm. think, yeah, literally like the width of your palm. Yeah. They're very small um, because they've done their job. They hung out. They were ready to have a baby when you were in that time. And now they're yeah. just sort of like, Taking a break. We're finished. We're not Aww. weird. Not I'm weird. Sorry. <laughs> well, this is awkward. <laughs> I try not to be an ageist. The, the most important thing of this podcast is me learning not to be an ageist. And I'm, well, I apologize. We all, we all can improve all of the time <laughs> yes, with our different can. things. We're all learning, yeah. but constantly she's yeah. like throwing me in the dinosaur bus. So, so, so I would say endometriosis, fibroids, and adenomyosis are the most common cons- cause of pelvic pain that I see. And none of those are cancerous or cause cancer cancer or anything like that? No, there is a, a studies now about endometriosis that those women might have a slightly higher risk of something called endometroid ovarian cancer. Okay. But those those things are still being studied. But fibroids mm-hmm. are 100% benign um, and do not cause cancer. Okay. Can you talk a little bit to some of the treatments for some of these disorders? Yeah. So let's start with endometriosis. So endometriosis is Um, what I like to call like a silent disease Mm -hmm. in that there's no test for it. Mm -hmm. When you see a woman walking down the street, she doesn't look like she has endometriosis. Mm -hmm. She most of the time are young, healthy women. Um, Most women are diagnosed between the ages of 25 and 35. They have a history of super painful periods, like super painful. Like, you know, everybody gets a little bit cramping. Sure, you Mm -hmm. take a Motrin, you're fine. But women with endometriosis, they miss school. They miss grade school. They miss high school. They miss college. They have to call out of work. They know their period is coming. Mm-hmm. They got start get paid the the day before. I think I'm nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, just awfulness, just awfulness. Um, the only way right now to definitively, defi- I'll try that one more time. De- <laughs> definitively, words are hard. Doctors, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> definitively, diagnose endometriosis is with surgery. Mm-hmm. So uh, oftentimes we'll do a laparoscopic surgery. So again, that's through a few small incisions on the belly and the um, abdomen is filled with air and we can look around, look at the appendix, look all around the uterus, around the ovaries and actually physically take out any areas that look like endometriosis, send those to the lab. And a kind of doctor called a pathologist will look at those pieces of tissue underneath the microscope and tell me whether it's endometriosis or not. Most women I find um, don't have a discussion with or doctors don't have discussions with them regarding the possibility of endometriosis. It seems that a lot of young women, when they go to the doctor, like I have painful periods, that's just check and they get um, Motrin or a high dose Motrin type medication called naproxen and they Mm -hmm. get put on the pill. The pill's a great, great, great first-line medication for treatment of pelvic pain and endometriosis, Mm -hmm. but um, it's always still shocking to me how 
women don't even hear the word endometriosis Mm -hmm. until they've been through a couple of doctors and have been on the pill for 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they come and have a discussion with me and we talk for 30 minutes or more just about all the different aspects of their pain. And I go, I think you got it. Mm -hmm. Um, But so it's only definitively diagnosed through, through surgery. It doesn't mean we can't try to treat it without surgery. Mm -hmm. Then um, adenomyosis, unfortunately, there's really no good treatment for it. It's most common in women that are a little bit older, mm-hmm. like 30s <laughs> or 40s. <laughs> like, like 30s or 40s, usually um, after women have babies, it's, it's more common. Um, we try to treat sometimes with oral contraceptive pills, mm-hmm. with uh, IUD, intrusion devices are the bomb. Okay. They're so good for so many things. Um, but a lot of times those women do end up having hysterectomies. Okay. As far as fibroids go, there are, are a couple different treatments. Um, there are a couple medications that decrease the estrogen in your body, something called Lupron, puts you in a little state of medical menopause, mm-hmm. causes those fibroids to shrink. Um, additionally, there are surgical options. Women can have something called a myomectomy, mm-hmm. which is where just the fibroids from the uterus are removed and then the uterus is reconstructed. That, um, that path is usually better for women that are planning on wanting to have children in the future or just aren't ready for their uterus to be taken out or to have a hysterectomy. Um, there's also a procedure called a uterine artery embolization. Mm-hmm. That's done by a type of physician called an interventional radiologist. They put a small catheter in an artery in the woman's leg and they go in and find out what blood vessels feed the different fibroids. And then they inject a medication that cuts off the blood supply to those fibroids and causes the fibroids to shrink. Side note, as a GYN nurse, I can tell you that those patients were always in the most excruciating pain yeah. because something was literally like dying inside of them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's how I describe it. I say yeah. it's, it's like giving the, a part of your uterus a heart attack. That's right. what a heart attack is. It's when blood supply gets cut off to a certain portion wow. of your heart. So it, I, it is pretty <laughs> painful. But, you know, some women just they just don't want to have surgery. And right. that's totally fine you know the none of these um things that we're talking about are life-saving in the sense that women will die if they don't have these different things but um unless of course they're bleeding so much from their fibroids that they're needing multiple transfusion Mm. which can happen um but pain i think in women is often very underestimated yes very very underestimated and Quality of life is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't walk around making sure that you have a bottle of Motrin in your bag forever mm-hmm. because if you don't take 800 milligrams every eight hours on the dot, you're going to be on the floor. Right. It's just not okay. Right. How about um, back in the day, since, you know, someone has to speak to back in the day, um, hysterectomies, a lot of women would have hysterectomies for um, uterine fibroids. And is that still done or not so much anymore? I think that every every patient with fibroids is an individual. So it's a discussion that we have. I have a little worksheet, actually, that I go through. I have a uh, I used to draw uteruses out for patients, but mm-hmm. they ended up looking like moose. So <laughs> so I have like a little printout now of a uterus and I say, this is where your fibroids are. Yeah. This is why they're causing you issues. These are the options what would you like to do? Mm-hmm. And women that do not want to have the ability to carry their own babies in the future, uh, I would say the majority, like definitely 60, 70% are like, I'm done. 
get it out because they've been really? suffering with it for a long time. Yeah. You know, fibroids don't grow overnight. They start mm-hmm. little and they get bigger as time goes on. And, and some women are, they're just done. They're just done. And in sort of my opinion, you know, we can do a lot of things to our bodies these days. We have mm-hmm. a lot of autonomy. We can get uh, our nose job. We can get our boobs done. Mm-hmm. We can, sure, you know, whatever. And so if a woman comes to me and she's like, listen, my periods are really heavy. They're really painful. I just, I just want my uterus out. As long as there's a medical indication, I'm totally on board. Okay. Now, when you say hysterectomy, that doesn't necessarily mean every single thing comes out, right? Could you talk to that a little bit? Like yeah. how you determine what parts you leave, what parts you take? That's a really great question. <laughs> so a hysterectomy consists of removal of the uterus and the cervix. That's something called a total hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. We have um, a lot of patients from back in the day that say they had a partial hysterectomy. That's not a medical <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah, so yes. so most women, when they say they had a partial hysterectomy, really what they mean is that their ovaries are still in, in place and mm-hmm. in their body. But that's not even part of hysterectomy when we're talking about it medically. Mm-hmm. So hysterectomy is removal of uterus and cervix. We used to do something called a supracervical hysterectomy where just the uterus was removed and the cervix was left in place. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are still happening in some places depending on the exact issue um, that's happening with a particular patient. But um, mostly those are not done as much anymore. Cervix doesn't really do much for you. Its whole job is to hold a baby in. When Mm -hmm. you don't have a uterus, just get rid of that bad boy. All it's going (laughs) to do is get cervical cancer. You still need pap smears after you have a super cervical hysterectomy. Right. But after you have a total hysterectomy, when the uterus and cervix are gone, if you have a normal pap smear screening history, you don't need any more. So the other parts that are left after we talk about the removal of the uterus and cervix are the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. Mm -hmm. We've we found through a lot of good data that a lot of ovarian cancers come from the fallopian tubes. So now when we go to do a hysterectomy, we are routinely taking fallopian tubes. There's no reason to leave them. Again, their whole job is to transport an egg to the uterus. Mm-hmm. You don't have a uterus, get rid of those tubes. Right. So now mm-hmm. we have, yeah, get, don't, eat, don't eat them. You're just hanging out there. Okay. So then uh, the other organs that are left are the ovaries. Most women have two ovaries, one on the right, one on the left. Um, that is also a particular discussion that I have with each individual patient. Typically, when a woman is over 65 mm-hmm. and we're going to do a hysterectomy, the ovaries come out because at that point, they're not really doing that much. They're mm-hmm. not secreting any estrogen for sure. And so the risk-benefit ratio of leaving them in is not very high. So we take them out. I always think of them as little time bombs after that. Like, exactly. Why are you leaving something there that could that could just get weird? Exactly. Take it out. Totally, <laughs> totally agree. If a woman is under 50, those ovaries are staying in for sure. Unless... This is like her third or fourth surgery for pelvic pain because okay. endometriosis we know is is um, uh, an estrogen-dependent mechanism. Mm-hmm. So endometriosis tends to get a lot better when there's not a lot of estrogen around. Okay. So for me, I certainly have taken both ovaries out in premenopausal women or women that are still getting regular monthly cycles for pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. And that does cause a woman to go into menopause when mm-hmm. you take both of her ovaries out. But for some women, the benefit of improved pain is worth that going into menopause for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Between the ages of 50 and 65, that's a discussion we have with patients. If a woman says, my mom died of ovarian cancer, I want my ovaries out. Mm -hmm. I say, all right, 
done. If a woman says, I really hate that I have to have a hysterectomy for abnormal bleeding or, or whatever, I want to try to leave this earth with as many of my original body parts mm-hmm. as possible, then we leave them in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and my last kind of thought was, how are these covered by insurance? Are pelvic pain disorders recognized? Are they covered by insurance? Do you have to be creative? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's that look like? Because as we know, healthcare is very expensive. Yeah. And for a lot of women, especially if they have families and kids and things like that, mm-hmm. making a big decision like this, you know, they may not be putting themselves um, first. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And unfortunately, this is a big problem in this country is insurance coverage. I take a lot of different insurances in my office and I have not had any issue having surgery for pelvic pain being covered by insurance. Um, Sometimes I ask patients to get MRIs or or a type of imaging that I've had trouble with, but actual surgeries, no. Okay. Good to know. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll have more with Amanda, Dr. Amanda Ruskowski. Thanks, y'all. Hello, my name is Josh Levinson from the Between Two Rocks podcast here at Baobab Tree Studios, and I want to share all of the wonderful people I know in New Haven with you. From restaurant owners to painters, photographers to small business owners, political activists and city officials, we discuss issues you care about and then make fun of them. Join us the Between Two Rocks podcast wherever you get podcasts today. Welcome back to the Midwife Crisis Podcast, where today we are discussing pelvic pain with our resident expert, Dr. Amanda Roskowski, or as I like to call her, Amanda. Thanks again, Amanda. You said resident. I had flashbacks there for a minute. <laughs> of being a resident. <laughs> yeah, when, when we were talking about that, I was thinking, uh-oh, she hears that word resident. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that might throw her sideways, went through her sideways a little bit. Um, In this podcast, we often like to take a look at the intersection of culture, race, um, and sexuality when we discuss topics, and pelvic pain is no exception. Um, A 2011 study from Howard University Hospital found that African-American or black women with endometriosis are often misdiagnosed and that more of these women are suffering from the condition than was previously thought. Additionally, uh, women of color are assumed initially to have other disorders such as pelvic inflammatory disease or fibroids, um, which um, is interesting, uh, as I was saying, are issues that are sometimes diagnosed by midwives, the pelvic inflammatory disease, and fibroids too, if we feel like your uterus is enlarged and we get you an ultrasound and then we find out that you have fibroids. Um, And it's of interest, I have fibroids, my mother had fibroids, it's like a, a, a family thing for us. Those of you who listen to our podcast, episode one, the first baby I delivered, the baby had six fingers, and that was like a marker in that patient's family. She was so happy the baby had six fingers. Um, Her father, her siblings, they all had six fingers, and she wanted the whole tribe to see it before they were removed. And so... That's our thing. Fibroids. We all have fibroids. <laughs> if, if you don't have fibroids, you're probably not really in our family. You probably got adopted somewhere along the way. Anyways. Uh, PR family addition, test. In yeah. addition to many other things. But, um, yeah, so I was wondering if you might um, comment. Well, and then also, 
you know, I don't know, Kate, no, yeah, you want to sure. talk about. But before I finish, we're going to ask you to comment on, on that intersection. And Kate, you wanted to talk yep, a little so bit. Yep, so hold that thought. And I was just going to say, just as every time we talk about any of these issues, um, you know, the LGBTQIA plus population is no exception to this either. Um, you know, people with uteruses are often underdiagnosed when they're part of this population um, with conditions mm-hmm. like pelvic pain. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did find a great piece uh, by Jules Netherland, PhD, called How Endometriosis Helped Me Become a Tenderhearted Butch. <laughs> and she writes, as a butch woman who is often mistaken for a man, my experiences with the healthcare system have rarely been positive. Mm-hmm. I've been met with incredulity, hostility, and curiosity. I've been asked inappropriate questions, offered tests and procedures I neither needed or wanted, and been the object of teaching moments where other providers have been called into the exam room to marvel at my appearance and ponder my hormonal makeup. She goes on to discuss this as well as her difficult relationship with masculinity and how this caused her to suffer with pain that was completely undiagnosed endometriosis for years and Mm -hmm. years. So yeah, Amanda, what have your experiences with women of color and the LGBTQIA populations been or anyone who's on the fringes when you're dealing with pelvic disorders and how does that influence your work? Oh, that's a very easy question. It's not. It's a a terribly difficult question. Um, So first of all, like PR said, we know that African-American women have a higher incidence of fibroids. Like that's just a fact. Most women have heard about fibroids when I talk about them. They know their grandma had a hysterectomy because of fibroids. They know that their mom was admitted to the hospital and needed blood transfusions at one point. Mm -hmm. I think in general, anybody that is a minority has less access to health care. And that's a problem Mm -hmm. in this country. Um, We think that there is a genetic component, like PR Mm -hmm. so beautifully lined out (laughs) her family tree for us, that there's there's something there that's causing, in particular with fibroids, that are, are causing these cells to grow in an abnormal shape. The same thing with endometriosis. We don't know how, we don't know why, but it certainly does run in families. And so, you know, women will know, uh, or moms will bring their daughters in and be like, this was me in high school. This was the same. I used to, mm-hmm. I used to miss two days of school a month. I'd be on the toilet. I'd be vomiting. It'd be awful. Um, as far as LGBTQIA plus population, the same thing. Lesbians are terrible with GYN care. <laughs> I, I speak that as one of them. It's just... You know, you think that you're not as as high of risk for um, like STDs or STIs like gonorrhea, chlamydia. You are not going to get spontaneously pregnant. So we tend to just not take as good of GYN care as ourselves. She says as she blushes because she knows she's overdue for her annual. That's she is me. overdue. Yes. Now, I, now I'm staring her down <laughs> as her midwife. Yes. Yes, I do. Kate is my personal midwife. She was there for the delivery of my babies two years ago. And um all the other good routine GYN care stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, anyhow, I I certainly think that um, lesbians, bisexual, definitely transgender people are nervous of healthcare mm-hmm. and are nervous of how they're perceived. At, perceived, and that um, the the article that you just quoted there that's. That's it. That's it. They don't want to be seen as the different person. They don't want to have right. to answer those questions. And it's pervasive. I can say even from my own personal experience, um, my wife and I have uh, two-year-old twins. And even two weeks ago, they had to go to a surgical center to get their ear tubes placed. And they called me and said, please bring your husband. And mm-hmm. I'm like, <laughs> I know. And I, like, it's not that hard. Like, you know, you bring in two babies. Please bring another adult with you. That's, right. that's, all, that's all you have to say. And it's just like, yeah, <laughs> wah, yeah. Wah. 
Um, so anyhow, I think that again in the, in the trans community too, especially trans men, they can get endometriosis. If you mm-hmm. if you have a uterus, you can have endometriosis. Actually, fun fact, even if you don't have a uterus, you can get endometriosis. Right. Right. So um, there are some case reports about um, XY mm-hmm. men um, f- finding endometriosis in different mm-hmm. parts of their body. It's not very common, but it can happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amanda and I both went to a LGBTQIA um, sort of health summit where we tried to learn more about just really being inclusive. Because even though, again, I di- I, I was going to say I diagnosed myself. What is happening? But you did. <laughs> I diagnosed did. myself as queer. <laughs> and she diagnosed herself as lesbian. Um, <laughs> anyway. I diagnosed myself as black. Yes. <laughs> it's a pretty good test to take, actually. I'm like, yeah, this is it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway. Uh, so even even coming as as part of that you know community, yep. we both felt like what can we do mm-hmm. to improve this? And you know we listened to panels of of people and women talking about what they preferred and what they wanted, and and some of it even even as we consider ourselves mm-hmm. so you know woke, mm-hmm. we were like oh my gosh you know this person wants it to be called their front hole and yeah. that's going to be really hard for me. Yeah. So um, so you know even feeling like we're sensitive, we always have the opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. learn and be a better provider for every every woman, every person. Every person. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, every person for sure. Um, do you have other suggestions for um, enhancing or improving our care of of these women? Well or these persons? I, I think that every provider, healthcare provider in general, needs to really communicate with patients what they're doing and and why. Mm -hmm. Why is it important? Um, Especially when you're talking about exploration or examination, not exploration, examination of Mm -hmm. parts that are very private. So I do lots of young women's first GYN exam, usually not until they're after 21, because that's when you're due for your first pap smear. (laughs) But I say, this is what I'm going to do. This is where you're going to feel me touching. This is why I need to do this. Um, and I think that if you like, you know yourself, if mm-hmm. you go to a doctor and you do not feel comfortable for whatever reason, you yeah. don't like how they did this. You don't like how they did that. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You can go somewhere else like you and nobody. I am never offended. I am like way casual in my office. And some patients are like, don't like that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. OK, you know, that's fine. Yep. You're not hurting my feelings. Like I want it's important for you to feel comfortable. Absolutely. And definitely for pelvic pain, I have I can't even tell you how many women I will have been their third, fourth or fifth opinion. And they just are they're like dogs with bones. They don't want to give up because they know in their heart of hearts that something is wrong with them. Right. And mm. they come to me and all it takes is 30 minutes of talking and even before I examine them, I, I say, I think you have endometriosis because endometriosis is hard to diagnose mm-hmm. because you can't feel anything on exam. There's no imaging that says oh, that's what it is. You right. really have to take a really good history. And I think in general, medicine has gotten away from taking really good, good histories. History. That's <laughs> yeah. true. That is really true. We're really Listen. relying more on imaging and tests and, and really like. I think that 90% of the time I know what my diagnosis is going to be before I even touch a patient. Mm-hmm. You need to listen. Listen. I think the lesson there is listening. Yeah. And, if, and I think that's the thing. Women, uh, especially menstrual pain, like lady problems, yeah. gets really diagnosed. Like, oh, yeah, you have painful periods. That's what 
periods are painful, but they should not stop you from doing your daily life. Right. If your period is knocking you on your butt, Mm -hmm. somebody is going to figure out what's wrong. That is not normal. Right. Do you think there's a reason why um, providers are not scared, but maybe hesitant to diagnose people or to say like, hey, I think you have this issue? I think that probably it has a lot to do with the time constraints that we have on appointments these days. Mm. Yeah, I think that, you know, you know, sometimes mm. you're expected to see 30 some patients in a day. Mm. And that's for an annual, you're you're trying to get in and out in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's including your entire exam, your entire history, yep. and writing your note. Like, it's impossible. And their vital mm-hmm. signs. I right. mean, a lot of them show up at the beginning of their 15 minutes. So yeah. sometimes it's five mm-hmm. minutes right. to have in the room. Yeah, exactly. And and endometri- like I usually leave 45 minutes for my endometriosis consults mm-hmm. because it's a, it, it cannot happen in 15 minutes. And I cannot do a good job in 15 minutes. Does that mean I make less money? Yeah, but I am can sleep at night because <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a good job. Yes. You know? So it's really, it's really taking time. And so I think that that's a, that's a lot of it. I think that in general, in general, women probably are coming, they're like, yes, they check that box that Mm -hmm. they have painful periods on their review of systems. You know, when you go to the doctor's office and you get that piece of paper or that tablet or that whatever, do you have any of these problems? And so you check off painful periods and the doctor goes, oh, or provider goes, oh, you have painful periods. And then that's the end of the story. There's no further discussion about it. There's no, well, tell me, like, when did you first notice this? Does it start the day before you get your period, the day you get your period, the day after? Where does the pain go? Is it more Mm -hmm. on one side than the other? Do you have pain when you have sex? That's a whole, we didn't even get into pain with sex. That's a whole nother Mm -hmm. list of things it could be. Um, And so I think that you see pain with periods and, oh, go on a birth control pill and, you know, stay back next year. and, And there's just more to it than that. Um, Are there any last bits of information or anything you'd like to share? I I just really want to encourage women, people, really feel comfortable with your provider. And there's somebody out there that's a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's hard to find a doctor, any kind of doctor, primary care, GYN. When you find a good one, tell all your friends. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, my mother-in-law actually would have a GYN date with her best friend. They would make their annuals on the same day. Oh, I know. (laughs) So cute. And then they go out to breakfast afterwards. That's adorable. I know. I always like to schedule my friends that I'm also their care provider for at the end of the day so that I can just like shoot the breeze with them. Oh, nice. You know, just hang out, not feel rushed. (laughs) Exactly. Catch up. Exactly. Yeah. But um, so, so yeah, so that's what I would say. I say go Find somewhere that you're comfortable and and don't stop. If you really feel like something's wrong, it's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to get a third and fourth opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, until you feel like someone has listened to you and really heard your whole story. Mm, that's um, all of that is very important we're gonna have to um, certainly invite you back because i think that pain with sex uh, Mm. is a big issue oh yeah Mm -hmm. and that would um cover that would consume an entire episode also that's the truth because as one of my former uh chief residents used to say there are a million ways to make love there are a million ways to have sex and so just are you sexually active is a whole nother thing. Oh, yeah. Whole it's, nother thing. It's yeah. opening up Pandora's yeah. box there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we would love to have you back to talk about some of that in grand detail. Yeah. Um, is there anything you want to plug, Dr. Roskowski, MD, PhD? Is there any, <laughs> like, anything you want to just, like, this is your free moment. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh you know what? I should. I am actually giving a GYN myth talk at the local library. What? I know, right? Um, at 7 p.m. on October 30th, I'm giving a GYN Myths 101. 
um, lecture at the Hamden Library. And so that's Hamden, Connecticut. Oh, Hamden, Connecticut. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody wants to fly out from California for that? It's like a good one. New Zealand. We have, a, we have some listeners there. <laughs> oh, so. cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, check in on your girls around. If you notice that they're not at work one day a month and be like, yeah. hey, you know, is everything okay? Um, and just believe women just believe women. Yeah. Believe and them when they say they're in pain. I also, you know, I hate I hate the term mid-level provider, but mm-hmm. for anyone who is not an, an MD um, and caring for patients, don't be scared to refer. Right. Absolutely. I, I literally have on the back of my business cards written down multiple times for patients, mm-hmm. all different specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Amanda is certainly probably my most common referral. <laughs> um, but there's just no reason for you to tell that patient, I don't I know. I don't know. Exactly. And I can't help you. Because exactly. Right. I mean, literally, there have been times where I've sat on Google over my lunch break and said, this person's complaining of this. Mm-hmm. What the heck could I do for them? Mm-hmm. Um, and just helping them even do that research or trying to get them on that road, yeah. because maybe that person you refer them to isn't the right person, but maybe they know the right exactly. person. And um, and we shouldn't be giving up because women's pain and people with uteruses, their pain is, is real. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And even for me, like sometimes I refer people when I'm stumped that, and, you know, it happens, but, but you're a hundred percent right. Not being like, well, I don't know. Good luck out there. It's really, that's that you really just got to try to help make that yeah. next step. for me. And I think it's in how you present it to the consumer, to the patient that you're not, you're not dumping them. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you, we're going to get you help. Mm-hmm. It's, it's beyond my scope or mm-hmm. uh, as an advanced practice provider, it's beyond my scope or beyond my knowledge base. And in your case, Amanda, if you're like, okay, you stumped me too. I know somebody else who's Mm -hmm. like has even a little more experience. There's one more quote that I really like. One of my favorite things that I tell to residents all the time is the eyes cannot see what the mind does not know. So if you Mm, don't even think of endometriosis as a potential diagnosis, that patient's never going to get treated. Right. Right. And, you know, and it's okay if you have super painful periods to go in and be like, Hey, I think I might have endometriosis. Uh-huh. And if the doctor's like, "Oh, you know, I'm not sure, not I don't know about that." And say, "Okay, well, who can you send me to that does?" Right. Absolutely. Yeah, self-advocating. Mhm. All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you guys are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this has been a pleasure, and I hope that we have um helped some folks out there learn something new. Yep. Um, we would like to thank Baobab Tree Studios. Um Rev Kev, Eamon, our friends, family, and Amanda, of course, today. (laughs) That's right. And you, you, all of you out there who make this podcast possible. That's true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And please, everyone, be sure to subscribe on Spotify and iTunes or wherever you listen. Make sure that you leave a comment, you know, rate this podcast. If you like us, find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Midwife Crisis Podcast, where you can like us and follow us and tell your friends, reshare us, whatever you'd like to do. Um, And please, 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 we love emails. So email us at midwifecrisispodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, don't ignore your pelvic pain. And always wash your hands. Bye. 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 Bye.